I'm Sugar Cane. Aye. Sugar Cane? Yeah, I changed. I used to be a Sugar Kowalczyk. You Polish? Yes. I come from this musical family. My mother is a piano teacher. My father was a conductor. <laughs> Where did he conduct? On the Baltimore and Ohio. Welcome to Calling the Night Boys with me, Gav, and Nick. Hello, Nick. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. Uh, it's just occurred to me, it's been less than two months since we last recorded a podcast, which has to be a record of some sort. I know, that's true, but I think uh, Joe Rogan was complaining that we weren't uploading enough. So, right, okay. Yeah. He's been, he's been on to you, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah, and the BBC, the BBC sounds are on to us saying, come on, we need more content. Yeah. Well, the people are crying out for, for our content. Yeah. So uh, I think I originally came up with the topic for this episode. And as usual, I failed to do any in-depth research on the issue. But uh, today we are going to talk about feel-good movies. And I did the classic bad journalist thing of looking up a dictionary definition of feel-good movies. And it's pretty, pretty limited, I have to say. This is from the Collins Online Dictionary. It says, a film which presents people and life in a way which makes the people who watch it feel happy and optimistic. I'm, I'm not sure that would be quite my perception of what a feel-good movie is. Uh, I mean, what's your, when I first suggested the topic, what was your thought about what is a feel-good movie? That definition sounds all right to me. And it's kind of like a movie to relax to that doesn't challenge you too hard. So it's not like it wouldn't be like a political thriller, even if you really like it. Probably isn't a feel good movie, like the Parallax View. It's definitely not. It's definitely not a, a feel good movie. You know what I mean? Then there are there are movies that are kind of um, perhaps a little bit downbeat or um, slightly pessimistic at the end that I would sort of characterise as being in my feel good universe. Things like um, With Nell and I. Right which has quite a sad ending, I it suppose. It does, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I suppose the thing is, it's a deeply personal thing about um, what what makes a, a movie a feel-good movie for you. When writers or producers or studios try and reproduce the formula of feel-good movies, what they think is the feel-good movie, it sometimes goes horribly wrong. Yes. Um, I, as I say, I've done very little research. Um, I was trying to pin down what what makes a, a movie a feel-good movie and what it is that it does for you in terms of rather than just that definition of makes you feel happy and optimistic because it's not just about the sort of familiarity of a of a particular genre um, or a film that you like to watch over and over there, well there is escapist film but then feel-good movies are sort of like a maybe a subset of some sort of escapist um entertainment isn't it but i think maybe that's the thing about feel-good movies is they don't offer you too many surprises yes, i think that's probably true which is why you know genre movies could be characterized as feel-good movies in some ways because you know what to expect from them you know what the parameters of the of the genre are but then again you also have opposing that you have those films which are characterized as feel-good movies and which you don't really know what you're getting because they start off quite dark it's a Wonderful Life is a classic, you know, often referred to as, you know, the ultimate Christmas movie, the ultimate feel-good Christmas movie. Pretty depressing to begin with, you know. Um, and the surprise in it is that things kind of get better later mm. on. Um, it's a bit like A Christmas Carol in that respect. Happy New Year to you in jail. Why don't you kick us off with your, your first choice? of feel-good movies. Okay, okay, listeners. Maybe put this on at Christmas time. My first feel-good movie is Some Like It Hot. Do you know that film? Have you seen it, Gav? I do. Uh, yes, I have. That. that is one of the ones I've seen, yeah. So do I need to go through the plot? Because I think most people will have seen this film. It's very popular. Yeah, I, I mean, either you have or you haven't. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd say, tell me why it's a feel-good movie. I mean, it's a very funny movie, as you say. Um, right, well, for me, the film is like slipping into a warm bath full of bubbles. 
after coming home cold and wet. And hopefully that bath has Marilyn Monroe in it. Creating uh, some of the bubbles, no doubt. Yes, exactly. Actually, bathing together in a normal sized bath is very uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Especially if you're quite so tall as you are. And I believe. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so it, it starts out in cold, wintry Chicago, gang, gangland Chicago. And then um, obviously Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon, they witness the St. Valentine's Day massacre. They have to go on the run. They don't know what to do. So they have to dress. The only people accepting new band members are this old girl band, um, Sweet Sue's Syncopated Sweethearts. And uh, so they have to drag up and... Um, make their way down to Florida instead of a horrible winter in Chicago, which sounds like a good deal as well. Marilyn Monroe is, is, you know, radiant as everybody says, but she's also really funny. Her timing's perfect. I think she's just great in it. And Tony Curtis is terrific with both his Josephine and his Cary Grant sound alike impression when he tries to woo Marilyn Monroe. But I think Jack Lemmon steals the film as Daphne. He starts off letching over Marilyn's character, Sugar, the thing about Jack Lemmon is he starts off like this and he feels very uncomfortable as a woman, but eventually at the end of the film, he wants to be a happily married woman to this millionaire. And so like The Apartment, it's pretty much a perfect film. I can't, I can't really fault it. I'm going to read out a review because it topped a poll, of the BBC poll of greatest comedies of all time. That includes In the Future, by the way, as well. Uh, in mm. 2017, this is from Nick Barber, who's a friend of mine. Some Like It Hot is the story of people who lie and cheat in order to con other people into bed or out of their cash. Wilder has a reputation for dark, cynical films. And Some Like It Hot could be cate- categorized as one of them. But it has so much warmth that it carries the viewer upwards like a hot air balloon. Rather than condemning its an unscrupulous anti-heroes, it respects them and sympathizes with them in a way which must have seemed radical in 1959 and which seems more radical nearly six decades later. The film for me is sort of um, sort of very forgiving. Joe, who's Tony Curtis's character, is a no-good saxophonist, but maybe he will change at the end of the movie. Maybe he won't. And Sugar, Marilyn, just can't help herself. So she's kind of, you know, she's always led to these men. It's like true desire. And the future for all of them is uncertain. And nobody's perfect. The famous last line of the film, nobody's perfect. Every other rom-com likes to wrap things up, I think, in a happily ever after. Whereas this film doesn't. And I think that's why it really appealed to me when I first saw it when I was about 10. Because when I was a kid, I always wondered what happened after the hero got the girl and they looked into the sunset. And I was brought up on Bond and Indiana Jones. And I always thought, well, what happens next? What happens with these relationships? Uh, you know, Bond always seems to not be in a relationship. Same with Indiana Jones. You know, what happened the day after? So I like, you know, I love it. Uh, but some like it hot kind of leaves this kind of uncertainty and this chaos. And it, it feels more like everyday life. It's not too sweet. It's not too fluffy. Would you think that that um, those sort of elements of light and shade that you mentioned, that, that there's obviously a sense of jeopardy mm. as well, because I think that, you know, there's this constant fear that they'll be discovered and these these kind of uh, hoods will catch up with them. Yeah. Do you think that's a, an essential element of uh, a feel-good movie? It can't just be saccharine from beginning to end. There has to be some, some conflict and um, some sense of jeopardy. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, there has to... I think, there, I think with any story, there has to be some some kind of jeopardy or change within the story. I mean, years ago, I came up with a movie idea that my brother kind of did an art project on, um, where it was going to be a movie, or, you know, a short movie, without any um, drama at all. Everyone's just really nice to each other in a slightly creepy way. (laughs) And everyone goes for a picnic, it's fine. And then eventually the last scene is that you see flowers growing out of our assholes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he kind of did so he didn't do the flowers bit but he 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 did some of the other bit you know 20 years ago this is so what do you anyway do you like this film i'm sure you do everyone likes this film i yeah i do i haven't seen it for quite a while but um you know it's the, the kind of stellar performances from all the leads i think this is the film i might be wrong i think this is a film that really kind of um sort of catapulted 
um, Marilyn Monroe as being a serious actor in that she'd had roles before where she was, um, you know, she was kind of sassy, but she was, we, she was basically kind of um, window dressing. Yeah. Um, and she was sort of playing roles like starlets where she was, you know, she had a few smart lines, but ultimately she, she wasn't allowed to have much depth. And in this, she kind of really shows some um, comic form and also just some, you know, some depth to the character as well. She brings something to it, which possibly wasn't there in the script. You know? Oh, absolutely. But, but yeah, no, it's a great movie. There's something about movies of that era that, um, because you know they were churning them out sort of at the rate of uh several a month but um but it's just it's so brilliantly conceived it's so well written mm. so well directed so well cast um that um just the act of watching it is a pleasure so you you, you don't almost have, need to have the feel good element it, it is just like makes you feel good just watching a movie that's just so I agree. brilliantly it's, made. It's... If I promise not to be a naughty boy, how about dinner tonight? I'm sorry, I'll be on the bandstand. Oh, of course. Wh- which of these instruments do you play? Bull fiddle. Oh, fascinating. Do you use a bow or do you just pluck it? Most of the time, I slap it. <laughs> <laughs> you must be quite a girl. <laughs> Want to bet? <laughs> uh, I'm going to... I'm going to come in with an easy win. So it's The Goonies, directed by Richard Donner, who, <laughs> curiously enough, also directed The Omen. Did he? <laughs> yes. Steven Spielberg presents The Goonies, a Richard Donner film. Realize what we could do. I don't want to go on any more of your crazy Goonie adventures. So, the, I mean, this this has a like a roster of. I mean, you've seen the movie, you know what it's about. But um, it, it's basically about uh, lost treasure, I suppose, or, or hidden treasure, almost like a, a Scooby Doo style adventure to find this mm. this hidden treasure with a group of kids up against uh, a group of adult criminals. Um, so it's a, a classic kind of like kids versus adults setup that um, that kind of works really well in in sort of I guess early teens. Most of most of them are kind of in their early teens, kind of on uh, you know around about puberty. It's got that kind of appeal of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that sort of adventure. They have to do lots. There's lots of traps, aren't there? So I can't remember the name of the pirate who <laughs> features. Uh, in the movie as the guy who who kind of uh, sequestered this treasure back in the 19th century or something oh that's right he's got he's got the comical name of one-eyed willie Um, and uh, the 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 whole film centers around this legend that that he has um, hidden this treasure away the the sort of the hall of his last great act of piracy um, and it's protected by all of these traps and pitfalls very much in the manner of a raise the lost art film um but uh raise the lost art with pirates which is you know got to be the ultimate feel-good factor i mean it's i think better, isn't it? well raider the lost art would probably be in my feel-good movies list but it just seems a bit wrong to have a film that features nazis in it as a um, as a film movie, although I guess yeah. maybe some people would include the sound of music. So, but they do, they uh, do, they, the Nazis do melt. Yes, that's true. But melting so, Nazis is not necessarily either a, a feel-good thing. You know, it's well, a kind of sense of justice and and the balance being righted between. Good we and used to we used to put a clip of that on just after the Queen's speech. <laughs> okay, the whole family would stand and salute. Not the not do a Nazi salute. I mean. Uh, <laughs> salute the film <laughs> oh my god yeah um, well i've i've heard lots of things about sussex um yeah and, well you know, that just confirms all of my beliefs about uh, <laughs> yes it's a hive <laughs> of uh... people who grew up in sussex i think the saddest thing about this movie actually is is um one one of the uh best actors in it um who plays um the 
plump um, teenager who's rather unkindly named Chunk. Um, he, I don't think his career ever really took off. His acting career took off after this. Um, and when you see sort of interviews with him now, he seems he seems fine about that. You know, he's kind of he's he's got on with his life and he's kind of got over it. But uh, um, it's one of those things where you 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 always expect the characters in your feel good movies to go on to, to great things because they feature so large mm. in your life when you watch a film that kind of really resonates with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it quite often isn't the case. Was that his only movie then? Chunks? Only no, movie? I think he made others, but um, it's that sort of classic thing of child actors sort of, as soon as they grow up, they lose whatever it was that casting directors, um, sort of were, were drawn to. You smell like this, So we went to see the film, and then afterwards I remember my mum saying, I say, oh, I thought it was great. And I remember my mum saying, but they just, they screamed so much. There was so much screaming. They do scream quite a lot in this movie. That's very true. Um, I mean... They're kids, so they scream with excitement and terror yeah. at everything in the film, right? Well, it is sort of like a um, a, a cinematic version of um, a roller coaster. Et voilà la plus étonnante et détonnante, la plus époustouflante. Elle est mystérieuse, la plus enjôleuse, la plus sulfureuse. Julie Oui My second choice is, I don't know whether you've seen this film, it's called Celine and Julie Go Boating. I'm guessing this is a French movie. Yes, it is. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. Celine Not because it... it's French, but just I haven't seen it. I ain't seen no French film. <laughs> um, Celine but, is... subtitles. Exactly. I, ain't re- I don't go to the cinema to read. I go to stare at the screen at the hypnagogic nonsense. Yeah, Céline et Julie vont en bateau. And so it's by Jacques Rivette, who is one of the least well-known of the Nouvelle Vague. It starts out, so Julie is a librarian and she's reading a book of magic spells and draws a sigil or a rune in the gravel of this park she's reading the book in. Then a young woman walks past, and that's Céline. And she keeps dropping. She keeps dropping stuff as she's walking, and so um, Julie calls after her, but she's ignored. And she f- she follows after Celine. Uh, it's a bit like that's the thing. One of the main influences of this film is Alice in Wonderland. So Celine, it's a bit like the mm. White Rabbit. It does sound quite dreamlike. After some circumlocutions, Celine, who's a magician, moves in with Julie. And they sort of become involved with each other's lives and they sort of swap identities, like they meet people pretending to be the other person. And then as the film goes on, they become involved in a mystery Mm. which is set inside a grand house on the outskirts of Paris. And inside the house, there's there are like people or ghosts like replaying the same very stilted, tragic play over and over again. Uh, wherein a child is murdered on her birthday. So the film directly inspired um, Desperately Seeking Susan, if you remember that film with Madonna. I do. I really wasn't expecting that line to come out of your mouth (laughs) (laughs) after that description. Yeah, it did. Well, in Desperately Seeking Susan, they swap identities and stuff, and there's a lot of this following around and stuff. Um, and it's definitely inspired, I think he said so, yeah, David Lynch with things like Lost Highway and More Holland Drive. Right. And, and, I mean, what I like about it, I only saw it a couple of years ago. I really like it a lot. I think a lot of people would be very irritated by this film because it is very French. I'm somewhat confused by the title. Celine and Julie go boating. Go boating or vente en bateau. Uh, they do go boating at the end of the film. Okay. That is a phrase that means to be caught up in a narrative, to be led along by the plot, mm. to be transported by storytelling. It's a, it's a fr- French idiom then. Yes, it's a French idiom, exactly. Quel salade, meaning, you know, a package of lies or... Oh, is that right? Literally a salad, but it means a yeah. tissue of lies. Quel, quel salade. 
Whereas we just say bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, which a lot of people would say that this film is. I mean, but I, I think it's great. You need some patience with it. I find it very, very inspiring, this film. It's all about creativity. Cinema and the viewers' relationship to cinema. The two leads, Juliette Berto and Dominique Labore, they were friends in real life and they're just really fabulous together. They also co-wrote the film with Jacques Rivette. Jonathan Romney, who is a film critic, I believe... Did he used to write for Time Out? I can't remember. Possibly. Anyway, he said, Celine and Julie become like childlike conspirators, sharing an adventure they make up as they go along, rewriting a somber drama as a knockabout farce. So I'm, I'm going to follow up your, uh, your French post-surrealist movie with an American Hollywood movie, but, right. uh, which similarly I actually only saw quite recently, even though it dates back to the uh, early 90s, 1993, and is probably totally at the other end of the spectrum of, of what you've described in that it's very, very much a by-the-book case of mistaken identity comedy. Dave Kovic was an ordinary guy. Mr. Cole, your government needs your help. We just happened to look like the president. You're a very handsome man. Thank you, Mr. President. Just get rid of the grin. You look like a schmuck. Dave, something has happened to the president. What about the vice president? The vice president is mentally unbalanced. Is this legal? Oh, yeah. Probably. We think so. Yes. Suddenly, Dave has a great job. I can't tell you the whole story. It's kind of a national emergency kind of thing, but you got to help me cut the budget a little. you got to cut the budget. He has a great house. Do I need to dial nine? Who does these books? I mean, if I ran my business this way, I'd, I'd be out of business. And he has a great wife. Why can't you die from a stroke like everybody else? She hates me. Yes. And the amazing thing is, everyone loves him. God bless you. God bless America! An Ivan Reitman film, uh, who's he was the director of uh, the first okay. two Ghostbusters films, original Ghostbusters films, and also interestingly, Twins and kin- Kindergarten Cop, both uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, vehicles, I believe. Those are those are low points uh, in his career. Did he do? Um, did he do Groundhog Day? I think uh, no, I don't think he did. Um, I think actually Arnie proved that he could actually do comedy in in those movies. Um, not necessarily that he was a great actor. But, He's uh, always been doing comedy. That's the way. I <laughs> yeah, but uh, intentional comedy in this case. Right. Um, anyway, this stars Kevin Kline and Sigourney Weaver. Uh, Ving Rami's who played Marcellus Wallace in um, Pulp Fiction, and it's about a guy who he's a sort of classic ordinary Joe, I guess. Um, he's a guy who runs a temp agency. And he's a nice guy. He 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 kind of cares about his 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 clients, his candidates. He's very encouraging. He, he really kind of gives them go-getting uh, motivational speeches when they're going for some dead-end job that they desperately need. He's not like Reed Recruitment, in other words. No, he's not like any recruitment person I've ever met. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who just kind of cynically okay. tries to fit a square peg into a round hole in order to get their uh, get their commission exactly but of course he he also has a, a an alternative life um as a an impersonator of the um of the sort of fictional president in this film um because he looks a lot like him so he he does kind of uh i don't know he he opens um new uh car dealership outlets as the president and delivers a speech um and uh the the slightly ridiculous premise of this movie which somehow works is is that he kind of gets brought into cover for the president um by somebody who's seen him doing his shtick um because there's a, a public engagement the president is supposed to be at but uh, i think he's kind of away committing adultery with one of his his many um young ladies um so this guy's brought in um dave the eponymous hero is brought in um 
to sort of cover for him for supposedly for one night only, um, except the uh, the president um, who I, I should point out, Kevin Klein plays both the president and Dave. Um, he suffers a stroke during the throes of passion. And so Dave is kind of commissioned to stand in full time until the president either recovers or the vice president takes over uh, the duties of, of uh, governing the United States of America. Um, now, what's nice about this movie is that it, you do have some kind of cynical forces ranged against him. Um, there's this kind of uh, a group of people in the White House who uh, want to use this to basically get themselves into power. Um, and Dave is, is this sort of innocent, I suppose, um, who feels like everybody should just be nice to each other and like maybe he should do his job pro- properly and, and take it seriously. His kind of supposed job as as you know president of the united states which uh which brings the wife of the president who's played by uh sigourney weaver the first lady it kind of bemuses her because her husband is a bit of a shit and um they're they're pretty much estranged and she's kind of bemused by this guy who not only is nice to her but also is much better as in his job as president i enjoyed this film i didn't love it but i liked it quite a lot and it did make me feel good yeah it's not um and i think that's the thing about feel good films they're not necessarily the best films you've ever seen and you don't absolutely have to love them you just get to the end of them and you kind of feel like i don't know you were saying earlier on like you slipped into a warm bath um i mean he's not an incredibly funny character although there are funny scenes He's definitely yeah. not cool. He's he's more like the sort of the nice teacher that everyone wished they'd had at school, or maybe he did have at school. He um, is exactly. He's the nice teacher. That's a great uh, characterization. I mean, uh, my feeling of this film is that it probably felt good at the time in 1993, but it feels really good now after years <laughs> yes. of horrible chaos. That there's someone in charge, obviously he is an imposter, but there's someone in charge who actually is a human being, who thinks about people, you know, he does, he changes policies so they they spend a little bit less on defence so he can keep these um, these schools and um, welfare places open and all this sort of thing. Um, and you just feel, yeah, that's great. You know, this is... What a president we, should be doing, never right? This way, but... Yeah, it was never this way, but it's almost like, why can't we go back to this? Why can't we go back to some sense of sanity? But the best, uh, I think the best thing about this film is the sandwich scene, which is the the uh, the source of quite a few internet discussions and memes, I think. He kind of shows what a nice guy he is when he's, he's sat with his uh, security detail guy uh, played by Ving Ramis. Well, he makes this Scooby-Doo sort of style sandwich and cuts it in half and then gives half to Ving Ramis' character and then gets him to start talking about himself as, a, as an individual, not just as like the job. Uh, it's just a, it's a brilliant kind of uh, summary of the kind of guy that Dave is, but also the kind of president he would be if he became president and of course you know that no (laughs) no world leader is ever going to be like that but you're kind of like yeah you know it'd be nice if things could be like this and that's the feel-good element it's it's Mm. fantasy but it's not it's not unrealistic fantasy because you know you know people can be decent you know i've always wondered about you guys the way they say that you'd take a bullet for the president what about it is that really true I mean, would you let yourself be killed to save his life? I'm going to get medieval on your ass. That sandwich scene really stood out to me. You look at loads and loads of American films, in particular Hollywood films, when people are making sandwiches, they're having a heart-to-heart, and they're also showing themselves to be wholesome. Uh Now, that film does it very well, but the day after, on one of the satellite channels, one of the free view channels or whatever i saw the beginning of commando <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> which is the the titles after after a kind of prologue of serious and horrible violence the title sequence of commando is amazing where arnold schwarzenegger is playing with his daughter at one point they feed a deer oh that's brilliant um, it's so brilliant 
But then, when the titles are finally fading away, and it's just the, his daughter—they're making sandwiches together because that's what they do. They're Americans, yeah, and they just like ham on rye. They just love it, man. Yeah, that's what they love. Because that's the thing—it's a simple, honest food stuff, you know, which which is a uh, metonym for a simple, honest guy. That re- I just thought, yes, yeah, sandwiches—that's what it's all about, man. That's a brilliant comparison. Um, yeah, and uh, as soon as you mentioned that. I just thought about um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's um, fantastic accent in that movie because that was quite an yeah, early, really early in his uh, American acting career. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah. When he proclaims that all he cares about is Jenny. His, his, Jenny. His daughter's name is Jenny, Jenny but he pronounces it Jenny. Yeah. Jenny. Now that Jenny. that sequence you're talking about is is fantastic. Um, <laughs> Yeah. It is. It's an amazing. It's the best it's part. Kind of the it's film. a montage, basically, isn't it? But it's it's a montage of cliches about like father daughter relationships. Yeah. Um, yeah feed it, the feeding the deer there's, is the best bit. They, there's one bit where they're sharing an ice cream outside a cafe, and his daughter like suddenly puts part of the ice cream into his nose, and he just goes, "Oh, oh, 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 oh this is what real people do." <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. Jenny, that was so funny. Throughout the years, working title films and writer Richard Curtis have captured the euphoria, hysteria, and humiliation of love. With the films Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and Bridget Jones's Diary. This holiday season... Join this unforgettable filmmaking team. Welcome, Prime Minister. This is Natalie. Hello, David. I mean, sir. 20 years ago, you'd have been just his time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think this is a good point to mention um, the utter antithesis of what we've been talking about, which is the kind of film that you would probably possibly tune into on Christmas Eve, early evening. Um, and just go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll watch this because, you know, it's on. Um, and which to me is just what is completely wrong about the idea of trying to manufacture a feel-good movie, the absolute uh, apotheosis of what is a feel-good movie, which is Love Actually. Uh, have you seen it? it? What I've seen of it is absolutely dreadful. I mean, it's not even, f- it's just not fun anymore. It, well, I it, it goes, and I described it, it as goes, apotheosis because I think it is, it, uh, ironically, because it is viewed as being like one of the ultimate sort of um, feel-good uh, movies. People love it. People love it. Um, Everybody knew it was cheesy, a bit like people liking cheesy musicals or whatever, and they like the fact that it's cheesy. But it's just shit. It's a, it's a, it's a really bad film. It, it it's, it's, uh, it's totally uninvolving. Uh, Every last cliche is 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 tapped, you know. There's no grit in it whatsoever, you know. Apart from Hugh Grant pretending that he's Tony Blair and telling the Americans what for. Yeah, you see, oh, I'm 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 fond of Hugh Grant, but um, uh, I no, I like him too, but you know, yeah, not in that, not in that. I th- I, I think he did himself no favors with this movie. Um, but um, yeah. I was actually, uh, I, I'd sort of avoided this on the basis that it, it, it has something to do with Richard Curtis, which is normally for me a, a kind of red flag. Um, but um, my my other half persuaded me that I should sit down and watch it. And it may even have been at Christmas. I think it was at Christmas because it is a Christmas movie, isn't it? I think mm-hmm. set at Christmas. And she said, "Oh, you just have to watch it to see how bad it is." Um, and I, you know, I have, I have um, an affinity with the idea of films that are, you know, so bad that they're good. It's a sort of, it's almost a staple of, of kind of movie watching, isn't it? There, are any Arnie, Arnie movie, early Arnie movie, is so so bad that it's good. Um, mm. uh, and after we watched it, I was quite angry. Um, yeah. Not, not necessarily. I mean, sort of at the movie, but also at her for <laughs> putting me through this knowingly. She knew it was fucking awful, 
and, and had, had she <laughs> seen it before? Yes. Right. Oh, and she knew what she was putting me through as well. I think she just wanted me to experience the pain. Maybe it's just a, a sort of um, a kind of uh, empathetic experience. It's just like this is how terrible movies can be. You need to experience this. <laughs> um, and it really isn't a feel-good movie because, as you say, it just explores a lot of rank cliches um, in a very, very formulaic way. Moving on further, I think sometimes um, I have a sort of supercilious and somewhat masochistic enjoyment of supposed feel-good movies like this because you can see, like, you know, rom-coms with Sandra Bullock or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. I um, remember those. <laughs> you, you can count. You can count almost every beat of what's going to mm. happen in the film. Oh, they're total formula. Come, which is why you have signs of bullock in them, right? Because well, bank, exactly. bankable star. It's sort of it's amusing because you can say, right, so that guy's going to be not so nice later on, and all this sort of thing, and you can see the ending. But maybe that's what we want. That's fine. The The film that really gets up my nose that is a feel-good film that a lot of people like is um, Bridget Jones's Diary. Apparently, the original newspaper column was quite good. But this is a piece of trash. And what I really loathe about this film, Renée Zellweger, you know, she put on weight for the film and she has big, big pants, big pants. And all this sort of thing. So she's supposed to be really relatable and down to earth. But her her character, I mean, she's just an absolute moron. I mean, I I don't mean a moron like Mm. the Three Stooges. I mean a moron almost like Liz Truss. (laughs) She's an absolute fucking moron. You just want to punch her in the face. And then there's, um, and you know. But not as xenophobic as Liz Truss. No, 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 no. That's unfair, Liz Truss comparison. But, but. Colin Firth and Hugh Grant have obviously are fighting over her. You know, she just walks into this publishing job, which is okay, and is totally shit in it. Then she's in it. Then she's in a broadcasting job, and because she shows her knickers on TV, suddenly she's a sensation and stuff. And it's all supposed to be funny, but actually, that's the thing, and relatable. It's not. It's 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 a real. Uh, I I. I don't know. I, I don't know how you can come out of that movie without feeling depressed about your life. I, I know what you mean, because I think the real sort of the real in quotes, Bridget um, Jones is, is um, a lot more cynical and a lot more sassy and switched on. Yeah. A real feel bad film is one of those films that people have really said, Oh no, this is good. This is fun. This is a cut above. And it, it doesn't measure up to any of those things. And you just feel at the end sort of betrayed and, you know, somewhat, you know, ready, ready for murder. Absolutely. We import two thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? I don't know. But some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? The Wizard of Oz, directed by Victor Fleming, in 1939. Wow, it's hard to believe it's 39. Yeah. Uh, According to the Library of Congress, it's the most seen film in movie history. I just don't have anything to say about this one because mm. if you haven't seen it, then I have to say I like I like the Wizard of Oz, and I think that moment when the Technicolor comes in is is kind of is glorious. It's just um, well, it is li- literally a transformation, isn't it? I mean, it's just suddenly you realise what film is capable of. Um, but I think it's quite a sinister movie. I'm not sure I'd describe it as a feel-good movie. I'm fond <laughs> it is of it. <laughs> But there's lots of lots of sinister things in it, uh, and actually, when she goes back to back to Kansas, it's it kind of feels like a bit of a letdown, doesn't it? After the gloriousness of Oz, and yes, she's back with her family, and like you know, the best. There's no place like home, and all the rest of it. But 
um, she's back in black and white real world of like living in some shithill farming <laughs> community in the middle of <laughs> the Midwest. Very good. Very good. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. I think I, yeah, but Oz is technicolor, but it's also really messed up. Even mm-hmm. after the witch is dead, it's a really messed up place because people are living in their own metaphors. Yeah, I love yeah. it. And I was thinking about why I like the really good musicals. I don't like a lot of musicals. You know, like any, any genre, there's a lot of shit. Action movies, you know, you have Commando. Mm. That's that's a 10 out of 10, right? <laughs> and then you have, you know, some straight-to-video Steven Ste- Seagal. What, what are you saying? Steven Seagal is a genius. <laughs> fuck are you talking about well he's a genius of being he's a being he's a genius of being more wooden than Arnold Schwarzenegger I'm just a chef um people usually men I would say become irritable when they watch a musical as someone begins dancing down Mm. the streets or whatever or bursts into song usually men their suspension of disbelief is shattered but the suspension of disbelief is held when Indiana Jones is dragged under and behind a truck or Bond has a car with an injector seat. Now, the thing about the singing and dancing, this is what I like about it, is that it's subtext put to the foreground. Yeah, okay. It's what people are really, it's what people are really thinking and feeling. I think the singing is like, uh, you know, whether it's, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think in The Wizard of Oz, you know, somewhere over the rainbow. The singing is like a it's like soliloquies in Shakespeare, so like Edmund in King Lear or whatever, talking to the audience. They are telling. So, are they telling the audience how to feel? So, I'm reading off my notes now. Uh, they are, but so are most films. So are most works of fiction. But they're they're talking Not, directly to the audience, right? It's like breaking the fourth yeah, exactly. wall, but without yeah, actually yeah, are, overtly yeah. breaking it somehow. Exactly. So non-diegetic music, so that's music, you know, the soundtrack, Mm. rather than music that's in the film on a radio, constantly tells us how to feel. You know, in Jaws, it's telling us how to feel, right? It helps create our feelings about the characters and the plot and whatever. I, I just feel that musicals just do this more honestly. Good musicals, that is. And so therefore, therefore... They are the true realism, the dramatization of what's really going on in our lives beneath all the chat and all the bullshit. So, over to you. That's brilliant. Uh, That's that's quite easily (laughs) one of the most pompous things I've ever heard you say. (laughs) But it's also beautiful. Um, I'm kind of with you on most of that, I have to say. Um, Unlike that whole idea of the songs in a musical being uh, the idea that the characters are speaking directly about their, their sort of feelings and directly to the audience as well. Exactly. The subtext, they're talking, they're, they're explaining the subtext. Yeah. Basically, in a beautiful way. You alone never work nothing else but single-handed. Sensible, very sensible. Just the same yourself. Kept on me Jack Jones ever since Nobby Curtis got me done for that job at Bellamy's. Well, I'm in Bromley. That's right. Last June, 12 man. I was casing that joint the night you got pinched. Well, what do you know? I'm oh, shortly <laughs> fetch Ah, nice to meet you. <laughs> Excuse nice me, I, I may be slow, but do I understand that you two are, in fact, both professional criminals? Well, what else do you take us for? Ruddy snoopers? All right, what's your setup? Just a moment, Pendlebury. We require a team, and if these two gentlemen insist on working alone... Oh, now, wait a minute. You make it worth our while, Cock. We're working with a band of oak, eh, Shorty? You said it. Well, in that case, if, uh, if you would both join us in the office, my friend Mr. Holland will outline what we have in mind. Um, so this is from a film factory. Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah, it's Andy Warhol. It's one of his early movies called The Lavender Hill Mob that he directed in 1951 uh... under the pseudonym Charles Crichton. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he also directed... Uh, Titfield Thunderbolt and much, much later Fish Called Wonder. So it's an Ealing comedy, of course. Um, and I could have picked any Ealing comedy really as a as a feel good movie, but actually 
a lot of them are quite dark and this is probably one of the few that isn't really dark in any sense mm. it's it's kind of a caper and the start mm. the the characters are, are sort of wrong and in various ways but they're all, it's all fairly benign um so have you seen it I saw it for the first time recently because I knew that you wanted to talk. I did. About okay, it. I, I really wasn't sure whether I'd mentioned it to you or I not. It, okay, so it's. I thought I thought it was lovely. Yeah, lovely. It film. is a lovely film, um, and it's a classic kind of Alec Guinness vehicle. Um, also got Stanley Holloway, Sir James, and Alfie Bassett are the kind of four main characters in it. Mm. Um, I've I've got an, a factoid for you um, from our friends at um, Wikipedia. So until Alec Guinness uh, made Star Wars, uh, or appeared in Star Wars, it was the highest grossing film that he'd been in at the US box office. You know, I mean, like Ealing were churning movies out sort of pretty much every week, I think, in the in the sort of uh, 40s and uh, 50s. But I suppose uh, what's nice about this is it's kind of it is a kind of heist movie, a caper movie, but it's it's just fairly benevolent. Um, it involves a bank robbery, um, and then trying to find a way to sort of sequester the um, the gold that has been stolen in this bank robbery in such a way that the criminals can actually benefit from it rather than just um, getting caught by the police. But um, it's it's in that sort of peculiar Ealing um, Ealing comedy bubble where you're not quite sure whether it's the 1930s or you know 1950s. I mean, like I said, this is 1951, but um, it's a sort of timeless era of not so much Merry England like Boris Johnson's Merry England, so so much as maybe pre Second World War England. Uh, I don't know. Um, where villains are never kind of like that villainous. They're just sort of wrong-uns rather than psychopaths. Um, and there are no real sort of heroes either. It's just like they're, they're ordinary people who kind of conceive a plan to make their lot a bit better um, and seemingly get away with it. But um, yeah, it's just... It's just a nice film, isn't it? It's a nice film about it's lovely. <laughs> bank yeah. robbers, slightly inept criminals with a fairly low-tech plan to mm. just get one over on, you know, the powers that be, I suppose. And that's what I think most of the, the Ealing comedies, there's that element of um, subverting the establishment and getting one over on, on the sort of... Uh, the the crotchety, yes, fusty, conservative um, underbelly of of British life. I'm not even the underbelly, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that's true. Whether it's Kind Hearts or Coronets or this film, or but yeah, I mean, again, it's it's one of those films that you want to show to your kids, but maybe they would just go fuck off, Granddad. <laughs> <laughs> well you see again this um, is a film that was like very old by the time i watched it um you know probably 30 years old or something yeah. um but has an appeal a timeless I that, appeal i think yeah if people want to sit down and watch it young people i mean because the thing is there are so many distractions today i'm not blaming youngsters for that kids or young adults i just think that there's so much to see and to watch and the next box set and the next thing to see on instagram why would you want to spend time with the lavender hill mob i mean i know why i think it's charming and delightful i i think part of the reason we liked older movies like jason and the argonauts or you know some like it hot or whatever precisely because there was nothing else on or you just stumbled across them you know um and you stumbled, or you stumbled across them, and you just thought, "Oh, this is—it's like, oh, I'm really bored. It's raining outside." There were there were two situations. Um, there was the sort of mid-afternoon movie when, like, mm. um, before TV stations discovered that they needed to fill um, every hour of every day with with sort of targeted content. 
Um, so you just stick mm. on a movie in the afternoon. Or there's the kind of the late night slot as well, which equally, you know, before that exactly. was filled with advertising and before it was filled with, um, you know, uh, targeted programming, um, you just got lots of old silent movies or foreign films or, you know, just old stuff, yeah. I guess. Um, exactly. Now they have A Place in the Sun. Whereas there, there was a film like that called A Place in the Sun with Elizabeth Taylor, wasn't there? Is it a place yeah, for le- but less uh, spray tan, I suspect. Yes, and left less just watching very boring people look at property and then decide that they're going to think about it at the end of the program. <laughs> and do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, oh. Imagine if you pitched a movie on that basis. So it's about a bunch of people who... They really want to buy a new home, but they're not quite sure what they want, but they know mm. they want it to be in the sun. Um, yeah. But when it gets to the end of the movie, they're just not sure whether this is the right place for them. Yeah. The end. And they, um, they've they got about they've got about 150,000, which will go quite far in some parts of yeah. Spain. But unfortunately, they're not getting the proper Spain because they will have to live alongside thousands of other British people. Anyway, on the other channel is La N. Um so I'm gonna watch that. Yeah. It's not a feel good it's not a feel yeah. good movie by now any that... means, but it's better than watching a place it's a in good the movie. La N is not a feel good movie, but it's a damn good movie, yeah. Watch that kids. <laughs> anyway, till twenty twenty one. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Call in the Night Boys, special 2020 feel-good edition. Today you heard excerpts from Some Like It Hot by Billy Wilder, It's a Wonderful Life by Frank Capra, The Goonies by Richard Donner, Celine and Julie Go Boating by Jacques Rivette, Dave by Ivan Reitman, Pulp Fiction by Quentin Tarantino, Commando by Mark A. Lester, Love Actually by Richard Curtis. It's Raining Men by Jerry Halliwell from the soundtrack to Bridget Jones' Diary. Disgraceful by Liz Truss. The Wizard of Oz by Victor Fleming. The Lavender Hill Mob by Charles Crichton. And Le Vent Torn by Sensunik from the soundtrack of La Haine. Please legally stream or download or buy on physical copy these movies and songs. And we'll see you next time. Bye.